Hi, Slice of Healthcare listeners. I am Dan DeRazio, CEO of Sage Growth Partners, filling in for Jared on this very exciting Titans of Healthcare episode, featuring an all-star panel of leaders in home care. Introducing them, we have Lee Shapiro, Managing Partner of Seven Wire Ventures, Christopher Bradbury, CEO of Integrated Home Care Services, IHCS, Christopher McGee, CEO and co-founder of Current Health, and Dan Trigum, CEO and co-founder at Metarive. Now let's get into it. All right, Lee, exciting to start off with you. I think it was clear during the pandemic that home was the place that people wanted to be in general for lots of reasons. And and as we thought about facilities and the dangers that there were, it created a unique excitement around the home. The home certainly did not exist only during COVID as a site of care, right? It's, there's been a long history, but there's been a lot of evolution and in some cases revolution. So as you look at the market, what do you see as the, the most pressing challenges of the home and the opportunities looking forward? Well, we certainly believe that uh, meeting consumers where they are and giving them the opportunity to access health wherever and whenever they need it is really important. And it's certainly a trend, Dan, as you highlighted, that came forward during the course of the pandemic um, and, and accelerated a lot of what had occurred. There were significant technology advances. There were also a number of waivers that were provided by the government to allow for better utilization of services in the home. Uh, But what we're finding is that there are segments of our population that, that frankly can't access care where it's traditionally provided. Um, And whether that's because of disability or whether that's because they're in an area where uh, care isn't available, uh, meeting them at home and getting them care where they are is critically important. And so I believe that we have the technologies to now enable that. Our biggest challenges relate to reimbursement um, and making sure that we have the right incentives in place to be able to provide for the care modalities that could be delivered at home. But there's no doubt in my mind that there are uh, great companies like like Dan's on the call today um, that are doing significant work in this area and proving meaningful results in being able to deliver longitudinal care as well as meeting emergent needs where people are and and doing that at their home. Lee, just one follow-up to that question. You mentioned payment models being really important to this discussion. What kind of um, stagnation, neutrality, or momentum have you seen post-pandemic, maybe in the last year, around these issues of waivers and moving care to alternative, alternative sites of care? Well, you've certainly seen there's been progress around hospital at home, which we'll also talk about today, um, and being able to deliver care um, in the home that's reducing length of stay in the hospital, it's, it's reducing the burden on hospitals because they lack the staff in order to be able to service people there. And so there are now advances that are being made in terms of providing bundled payments around services that can be delivered at the home. I just feel as when you asked me before, what's the biggest challenge? We still have a reimbursement challenge that has to be addressed. And the more we can align those incentives, I think the more we'll start to see the availability of care wherever and whenever it's needed. Yeah. Uh, Chris Bradbury 
Uh, great to see you. Thank you for your time today. Your model has been traditionally, and I know it's evolving, largely capitated from a home health infusion and a DME perspective. And so the deals you've typically been in, and perhaps that's evolving, have maybe been very different from the fee-for-service conundrum. Can you comment on your model and sort of, you know, maybe it, it's a little different than some of the challenges Lee mentioned that some other, you know, most of the country might face in terms of that fee-for-service model and how you see capitation playing a role in this discussion. Yeah, hey, Dan, thanks, thanks for having me today. You're right, for, for integrated home care services, the vast majority of our business is full risk uh, or shared risk in a variety of things. So even goes beyond capitation, but going at risk for a host of other outcomes, right, for, for our clients um, and, and their patients. And we're seeing the payers, right, uh, or risk-based provider groups as another uh, another segment that we serve, um, increasingly want that type of model because they view it as a far more aligned model when it's done right around financial incentives to help ensure timeliness of quality of care, achieving the type of patient experience and clinical and quality outcomes um, that they want to achieve, um, as well as helping to drive some broader coordination uh, that needs to exist, and there's a lot more opportunity across the spectrum of partners that a health plan is working with, um, and that's the preferred model that we're seeing day in and day in and day out. Um, you know, with that, it's very important that that we and others like us uh, continue to form very strong relationships with various providers, right? That are in our network, and it's not just within within our network that we work with but other providers and entities that also enable and provide care in the home. Because what we often find with the patients that we serve, after we do our thing, right? What we're seeing when we or one of our network partners in the home, we see things, we hear things. And what we find by and large is that the patients that we serve have tremendous other unmet needs, right? And one of the roles that we can play and do play and want to increasingly play is help facilitate greater engagement of all the benefits and all the programs, right? That whether it's a health plan, whether it's a risk-based provider organization or anybody on the phone that has that are intended to support that patient and then bring in, right? The different type of supporting entities at the right time to meet that particular patient's need in that moment. And that includes a host of community-based programs. And so if we think about it that way, a far more aligned model on broader healthcare costs, broader quality of care metrics is very, very much needed because it forces us and others like us um, to take those extra steps and want to take those extra steps where a traditional fee-for-service model is very hard to go there. Many people go there because it's simply the right thing to do. Right. Um, and so we're really excited to participate that and we're pushing the envelope uh, that with with our clients and, and their other partners in order to bring that to more and more homes. Yeah. Thank you, Chris. Dan. Um, phenomenal model. You talk about different kinds of providers that we yeah. think about utilizing in a much 
more powerful fashion, whether it's folks that can't get out where there's not enough of a network to serve them. And I think you also think about yourself as a bridge between virtual and some of that hands-on uh, capability. Can you share a little bit about your model and, and how you're scaling and training the workforce and share who that workforce is? Yeah, absolutely. And, and thank you again for, for having me today, Dan. I think, um, you know, well, we're very focused at Medrive is really starting with our most vulnerable and underserved populations um, and really focusing on our Medicaid and duels. That's really our sweet spot. And we firmly believe, you know, we saw during COVID, we saw telehealth utilization grow to almost 60%. Uh, certainly it's come down since the peak of COVID, but frankly, telehealth doesn't do all that much for our most complex underserved populations. You know, telehealth visit works great for a healthy 20 year old who needs a med refill. But when we talk about somebody with multiple chronic conditions, multiple core morbidities, uh, having SDOH needs that are unmet, a telehealth visit by itself isn't going to do all that much. And so we truly believe in this physician extender model, having the hands-on touch in the home. And what we found is that EMS is an amazing workforce to be that, that extender into the home. Um, you know, we, yeah, I, I personally don't come from an EMS background, but I've spent quite a bit of time working with EMTs and paramedics over the last three plus years working on MedArrive. And these professionals have amazing bedside manner. They're literally everywhere in every single community from the communities we serve and love doing this work. They love building these connections and they're used to going into people's homes. You know, nurse practitioners, don't get me wrong, are amazing providers, but aren't always as comfortable driving in cars and driving around town and going into these environments. And so we've really developed this hybrid model where we have this this workforce in the home supported by a multidisciplinary care team of advanced practice providers, including nurse practitioners, social workers, case managers, and we also have a team of care advocates who are really on the phone and helping to coordinate. I think Chris said it very well. Once we're in the home, there's so much we can do. You know, if you work at MedArrive, myself included, you have to go into the homes of the people we serve. I've been personally on dozens of ride-alongs over the last year or so alone. You know, I walk into the home, it's a double amputee diabetic hoarder in the poorest community of Houston. He's a member of Superior Health Plan, who's one of our partners there. And when you walk into the home, there's no way their provider, or certainly the health plan, has any idea what's going on behind those four walls. You know, our, our physician extenders, these EMTs or paramedics, they clear that pathway from the kitchen to the bathroom. They help ensure they have the right DME. And they're helping not only with chronic condition management, but really connecting to the right resources in the community where I'll tell you before, but for us being in the home, they don't have anybody who really is looking at what's, you know, what's truly behind their needs. And so I think it's a, it's a very powerful model. Um, and, and frankly, a population that doesn't have anybody, you know, really anybody coming in uh, to serve them. Yeah. Thank you. Chris McGee building a, a great business at Current Health and at Best Buy Health. And you guys have a, a phenomenal view and a phenomenal footprint and a very interesting model. Can you talk about how you view yourselves being in the home, sort of what you bring and what sort of the limitations are that you've, uh, and I don't mean limitations in a bad way, the role that you really play and can facilitate for some of these other players like IHCS or MetaRive. 
Yeah, thanks, Dan, and great to be here. So, um, Lee talked at the start about the, the future of care um, being much more in the home than it is today. And, you know, I think we see our role um, in the space as being the plumbing or the enablers for really any healthcare organization, be it a um, more traditional bricks and mortar hospital or a newer risk bearing provider group or pharmaceutical organization to shift some amount of their care from within a physical facility um, into that patient's home. And we seek to be an enterprise partner that can help them do that for really any population, um, be it super high risk acute hospital home patient. And we're a market leader in that space right now, um, all the way down to um, super low touch chronic condition management populations where we're almost exclusively operating with risk-bearing entities and we're trying to do long-term total cost of care reduction. Um, I, I think what, what's been really interesting in our model is the, and it's already been talked about a, a little bit, I think that the phrase virtual care is a little bit of a misnomer. It's still physical care, it's just in a different location. One of the biggest challenges that we had as we were building our business is many of these patients need a little bit of extra support in their home. You know, we deal with people who are 80, 85 with multiple comorbidities who don't speak English as the first language. Half of them don't have internet access. A quarter of them don't have smartphones. These types of populations where we can most move the needle and cost and outcomes, but you don't get there by just sending them an app. Like that's, that's not, that's not anything. Um, so us being able to, you know, through Geek Squad, for instance, go right out into the home across the threshold and support that consumer and educate that consumer and activate that consumer um, ha has been a really, really big superpower in the market. What I think is fascinating here, um, Chris Badray and Dan, <clears throat> and perhaps Chris McGee, is this, this view into the home. And if it were virtual, we would see a screen. I'm curious, uh, and Chris Bradbury and Dan, you've mentioned this, you've done these ride-alongs. What has, you know, really surprised you about the texture and the dimension? Dan, you mentioned some of that with that double amputee that, that informs how you think about advancing your models and the care that needs to be required to really serve these patients as we look forward. Chris, I'll, Chris, I'll start with you, yeah. Yeah, hey, th th thanks. And, um, you know, the days on the ride-along, they are some of the best moments, you know, of the month and, and some of the hardest. And by the, by the hardest, uh, I mean you see the need um, and that we all need to do more because there are so many people that don't have a trusted ally um, and they need more trusted allies. And so... The way that's kind of informed my thinking about it is a lot of businesses in healthcare, right? They build moats. And part of their business strategy is build a moat, build a bigger moat, build a bigger moat, right? In order to defend and extend your piece. Uh, every time I go out in the field and see it, I'm like, oh my goodness, we all need to get rid of the moats. Because in a moatless world, in, in terms of how we operate together, there will be far, far more collaboration, far, far more coordination, far, far more information sharing, and far, far more willingness to say, you know what, my organization and our team members, we should not be the lead chair that is helping this patient at this moment. 
It should be Chris's. It should be Dan's. It should be Lee's, right? And we got to build more of our model around when to recognize when we should be the lead chair, when each of us should be the second chair, and quite frankly, when we should just be carrying luggage for somebody else. Because ultimately, that is what is in the best interest of that patient and their family. But most of the healthcare system and the models aren't built around that because it goes back to defend and extend your piece of healthcare. And it is really inhibiting the progress that, that can be made. And that's why we're, for, for us, are pushing the envelope on a variety of risk-based and value-based relationships because quite frankly, it is like the burning of the boat moment, right? Uh, I go back to the mutiny on the bounty of burning the boat, you are committed. And for us, when we go at those types of relationships, we are fully committed because it's not just about managing the spend of our category. We're on the hook for the reinvent. We're on the hook for the whole hospitalization cost if somebody goes back into the office and we've got some upside in various ways. So the model drives us to figure out advancements in technology, advancements in coordination, and a real hard look at ourselves on when we should be the lead chair and when we need to bring somebody in, help enable, and then step out of the way. Because it's ultimately right for the patient and it's right for the payer, if you will, that's funding basically the benefits, right, that, that we're all providing. That's powerful. Lee, throughout your career, you've got a history of collaboration and innovation. And what role does technology play and where, where are the limits of that technology? Well, um, I appreciate you asking the question, and this is a hard thing for a technology investor to say, but technology without trust is not going to be effective. And I love it, you know, when Christopher talked about this and it came up in Dan's conversation as well, where you need to be able to have the right balance between tech and touch, but you're not going to be empowered to do either of those with anyone you're trying to serve unless you have that trusted relationship there. And I think the power of going into the home, if you can be admitted into someone's home, if they're willing to allow you to come in, if you show that you have care and concern, now you actually can enable the utilization of technology. We can't afford to send in, whether it's an EMT or a nurse or a doctor into someone's home every day. That technology can provide the bridge to allow for connectivity to capture information that might allow you to effectively allocate the right resource at the right time to that individual based on what the technology is telling you. But without establishing that trust in advance, you're not going to have permission to gather the information that you need that powers the allocation of resources to make sure that you're getting the right person, whoever the lead is, and Christopher's analogy before, whoever's taking the lead is going to do so hopefully based on a set of, of facts that can guide what's the right decision to be made, what's the next best step for that individual. So I, I would say that the way in which you know our companies have been built in terms of this combination of tech and touch is to create great consumer experiences where people see that it's really valuable to them because it's so much better than the alternative. 
to utilize the services of any of the companies that we're discussing here, um, whether it's it's the technology play or the in-person play, but you have to first be able to show that you're meeting their needs and you're helping them solve a big problem. Can I comment on that, Dan? Like, I, I, I think that's just completely right. I, um, the, the two biggest reasons we see patients refuse to um, activate or to take up enrollment in a um, home-based program are one, I'm nervous about what I have to do in the home myself. And two, I'm really concerned about the impact it might have on my caregiver or spouse, you know, whoever else is in the in the home. We just did a piece of work with Geisinger where we had Geek Squad go out and do these initial activations and activation jumped 50%. And our technology is not particularly complicated. So this was not about like, hey, we're activating them more now because the Geek Squad agent setting up technology. The, the biggest factor was actually the Geek Squad agent going out and saying, it's all going to be okay. Like you can use this. This isn't going to be difficult. This isn't going to take up a big part of your day. You know, you aren't going to break it. It's not going to be a big burden on your caregiver. And that like simple act of um, touch, as Lee put it, and building trust, like that jumped activation by 50%. And, and uh, again, I think that's why earlier when I said virtual care is a misnomer, virtual care implies you can do all of this entirely virtually. And sometimes I don't think you can. Sometimes you need that that touch, as Lee put it. I, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, Dan, you. I wanted to touch on this topic of how you're serving as a bridge between virtual and in home. And traditionally, at least for myself, I've always thought about EMS in a very different light, right? An emergent kind of condition. I think the data shows that in the United States, we use far less social support services, whether that's a social worker or other kinds of resources. And other countries have far better outcomes using different kinds of personnel. So if you can comment on how you're bridging that gap between virtual and in-person with you know, an atypical resource that most people are used to seeing other than an emergent EMS, right? And and how that helps the relationship with the overall care. Yeah, I mean, I think it was well said by by both the Chris's. I mean, it ultimately, and Lee, it ultimately comes down to building that trust. And I think what we found is leveraging providers in the home that are from the community, that look like the community, that know the community well, can have a much more meaningful impact and a much more meaningful encounter and build that trust when, when they're in the home. I mean, these are trusted professionals who do walk the streets, who just carry an air of, uh, of inherent um, you know, love within the community. And they just do a really good job at this type of work. And you know, typically, not to stereotype too much, there's two types of uh, EMS professionals. There's your 20-something-year-old who wants to run into a burning building and get the adrenaline rush. That's not who we employ at MedArrive. It's really those that are 40s, 50s, 60s. We had the former captain of the Houston Fire Department working for us. And these are people who want to give back to the community. You know, back in their day jobs, working the 911 shift, the only time anybody ever read their notes was when it came to a billing question. And so now, you know, we, we've developed what we call our pod structure. We have a ratio of field providers to nurse practitioners to social workers that manage a panel of patients within a community typically 150 to maybe 200, depending on the community. And, and, and we keep the same pod working with that same patient population to build that relationship, to build that rapport. And listen, it's four or $6,000 a day to be in a hospital. It's certainly a lot lower of a cost to provide care in a home setting. But 
compared to pure telehealth, it's not a cheap alternative, right? It, it is uh, it is expensive to send somebody into the home. Now that said, we want that lower cost labor to be that physical presence in the home and those advanced practice providers that higher cost, more virtual and telephonic. And that way we can also scale this infrastructure. And so bringing in those professionals through you know, a telehealth infrastructure, um, we can really scale this and do it efficiently and, and um, you know, really provide the best outcomes for both the patients and our health plan partners. Chris McGee, the challenges that you've had maybe had to confront or um, myths that you've had to overcome maybe from the provider community, right? You're, you're having these patients and how do you ensure the safety and the quality and the comfort both of the patient and maybe even more importantly, that provider who may not be comfortable you know, seeing these kind of people from a distance as opposed to right next to them. How much does the professional side of this equation need to be um, massaged in terms of maybe how our traditional providers think about the home and who can access it and those benefits? Yeah, I think it, um, it really depends on the particular model. So, <clears throat> you know, something like a, a you know, much more long-term condition management program I think provider concern there is very different than concern in an acute care home program. In the former, I think people are much more concerned about the influx of um, data that they might need to act on and what's their capacity to do so and what's their medical legal risk of doing so and so on. Um, I think in acute care home, where you know we're, we're physically taking a, a, an acute inpatient and putting them into their own home, the concern is is different. It's is this patient as safe at home as they are when they'll tend bases from the nursing station? Um, can I have the same access to them when they'll tend patient tend bases from the, the nursing station versus the home? Again, what's my liability risk for doing so? Um, it's, a, it's just a very different level of concern. Um, I think what's interesting in that though is that the data has shown us that the patients in these hospital home programs, they're not just as safe at home, they're safer in the home. So this idea that the hospital is this panacea of safety and that we all go into hospital and we all do really well, everyone knows that's not true. Like, you know, if you are a 75 year old patient, a hospital is a pretty dangerous place. If you're, um, if you've got acute delirium, you fall in hospital, your long-term mortality and morbidity goes up dramatically. If you catch a hospital acquired infection, your morbidity and mortality goes up dramatically. If you're in your own home environment, um, if you're, you know, if you're cooking your own food, if you're in a space that you already know and understand, your risk of falls are dramatically less. Your risk of infections dramatically less. So it, it it isn't just that the hospital is safer. We know that's not true now. We know the home is safer. I think that is still going to take time to percolate into the, the broader medical community. This is going to be a journey, and. Um, I think we need to accept that. Like, you know, it's not that tomorrow half of our beds are going to suddenly be within hospital home programs. Like, that's just unrealistic. This is a journey and we need to keep publishing great data that shows that safety's there. Um, we need companies like, you know, everyone here who are coming in and making it operationally viable and easy for the provider to focus on just doing their job. We can't have providers and nurses becoming IT support in the home you know, we, we, we need them to be able to operate at the top of their license. 
So there's lots of things that need to happen to make it to make it work long term at scale, but it's happening, and we just need to continue down that journey. Yeah, one thing, sorry, Dan, really quick, I would just add one additional uh, note. Forty-five percent of Medicaid patients visit the ED at least once per year. So in addition to hospitalizations, when we look at ED utilization, I think people need to remember there's a huge population population in this country who use the ED as primary care, and and that has because they have no other alternative. They generally don't have anybody coming into their home. And this is a segment that we can do so much for and have outsized impacts on by bringing services to them and really addressing those underlying more SDOH needs aside from just acute care needs. So I think there's, you know, in addition to the hospitalization data, you know, on just ED utilization, there's a lot to be done there. This is a bit of a trick question. This big word innovation, right? Um, Healthcare hasn't exactly moved quickly, and there's all the good reasons we know about that here. So on the one hand, I love talking about innovation. And on the other hand, I say, if we could just operate the basics well, how much better would we be? You have an integrated model, right? Home health infusion and DME. Can you talk about connecting some of those dots, even at the most basic levels? Which is not easy to do, by the way. I'm not saying it's easy. Uh, and what that has meant. Yeah, um, you know, it's interesting. For many of the patients that, that we serve have multiple needs. Just across the three or four big domains of healthcare services that we provide. And they have needs well beyond that. But just within the three or four areas that our, our, our solution set is very, very focused in on. You know, a couple of the areas that we're very, very focused on innovation and trying to solve. One, uh, the transition of care process. Leaving the hospital, leaving the facility is a very scary time. It's a very confusing time uh, for the patient uh, and, and, and their family. Uh, it's a big coordination burden, right, on the various clinicians that are supporting that, whether it's the facility, their treating physician, they're specialists. So we get very, very focused on how do we make that transition of care process as easy as possible so that the patient and their family can focus on what they really want to focus in on, their health and how to get back to their normal life, right, before what they were going through. Um, and that is both a, on the ease side, both a speed, right, and a disruption-free process. Second area, it's when, when they're back in the home, of who, how, and where do we help facilitate the best support? Whether it's the stuff that we do, whether it's helping with um, facilitating the best provider, right? Whether it's a personal aid, whether it's a, a nurse, go down the list uh, of that and continue to enhance the best provider selection so that it's not just the best entity in person that's supporting that, but how do we continue to support their development of the individualized care plan that has the best chance of achieving their goals, their being the patient, their family, and their treating physicians uh, goals, and then helping along the way to execute that, right? Um, and then the third part uh, with it, it's while somebody's in the home, whether it's one of our own 
nurses, right? A healthcare technician on the DME side, you name it, or a third party. How do we take advantage of that trusted moment, right? Because there are a lot of trust-based relationships uh, and trusted moments to pull through awareness of that patient's other benefits that they have, right? Whether it's benefits to access care, whether it's benefits to make a, a variety of care affordable, more affordable, or access things in the local community, that is a wonderful moment to tap into that. Um, and that's an area that we're investing very, very healthily, health, heavily because we're fortunate we own our fundamental care platform, which is called MedTrack, to be able to pull those things in and not just make those available to our own nurses and our own DME folks, but anybody in our network or other third parties that are in the broader ecosystem that our health plan partners create with various providers that they can tap in and leverage. Because it really is about how to bring the right care from the right person in the right setting at the right time, right? And then on the back end, how do we share information and insights to power not just the pieces, but the whole? Um, and that's where we're very, very, very focused. And it kind of goes back down to, in order for us to realize that vision, we've got a view of it's not about building our moat as a business bigger and bigger. It's quite frankly, it's eliminating the moat. Yeah, that, that's really powerful. And I want to talk about this notion of scale. Healthcare is very hard to scale. It's often hyper-local and we have the challenges of information sharing, different delivery models, different financing models. Chris McGee, um, you know, the relationship that Best Buy has and the scale across the country operation centers, call center folks who are doing, you know, from what I've learned a lot, it's not just, hey, I've fallen, I can't get up. There's wayfinding, there's, you know, medication questions. And I'd like each of you to address this. We said this is not going to happen overnight, but how is this moment in time around the home going to be any different when we face this scale issue, right, of, of some of these existing challenges? I'm not ex expecting this. There's some magic you know answer to this but i think we have to start to unpack this issue of scale because even if someone does hospital at home chris for some period of time they might start off with just a few right and how do you start to build that so i'm going to throw i'll throw it over to chris mcgee first and i'd love each of your perspectives on this notion of scale with the home uh, so i think the first thing is what are the underlying consumer trends and I think the data quite clearly shows after COVID that consumers are electing to go to easier sites of care um, to get that care than they were before. And in many ways, that's magnifying the, the economic challenge on some of our traditional providers because you know they are, they are seeing more high acuity, longer length of stay patients than they were before COVID because the, you know, um, the healthier patients are going to urgent care, they're going to CVS, they're going to One Medical, they're, they're not coming to the the, the more traditional providers. So I, I think partly that's because the consumer found out during COVID that those services were available. Like magically during COVID, you know, you, you said earlier innovation and healthcare slow. The start of COVID, it wasn't slow. Almost overnight, we reinvented our entire healthcare delivery model because certainly we had to. And I think a lot of consumers in that saw, I don't have to go sit and wait in the doctor's office for three hours. 
I don't have to drive 150 miles to the hospital. These services can be available virtually and they can be available inside my home and I'm not going back. Um, so I think consumer demand is something that um, will help hopefully sustain this change. The second thing though is, and, and Lee said this at the start, none of that's going to happen without financial model innovation. Single biggest thing holding back here in the home right now is financial models. They're just not there. They're weak. They're immature. The acute care at home waiver is going to expire in 2024 and it's election year. And let's face it, like it's not as if Congress is like super awesome at getting things done at the moment either. Um, so, you know, if you look at the opposite side, you look at something like meaningful use, you have a clear financial model and meaningful use for adopting EMRs. And what happens, most hospitals in America now have an electronic medical record. So if we can get financial model um, innovation to be there, to be sustainable, um, that will drive scale. It will drive hospitals. It will drive providers um, to do this. And when that happens, I think you will see exactly what is starting to happen right now. You'll see companies come in and try and meet that need for scale. Um, you'll see companies like Best Buy come in and say, hey, we have something we think we can contribute in the space. We have 20,000 Geek Squad agents in every local community, and we think they could be a part of delivering health. You know, We have a store within 15 minutes of 90% of the population. We think we can use that to contribute somewhat to, to health. Um, but I think first we need that financial model innovation and financial models right now are that if the dollars are not there, um, that's going to stop this in its tracks. Lee, you, you have built many successful companies at scale and have also had phenomenal relationships with payers and employers. How do you think about this question of scale, financial model, operational model in the home? Well, the, the challenge is, as Chris was, was highlighting, um, is being able to demonstrate um, outcomes and a return on investment to who's ever at risk for the cost of care. And so, you know, as, as Dan was mentioning earlier, this notion of ER avoidance or readmission avoidance, uh, the more you're able to prove that objectively, the more you'll be able to convince health plan partners that this is worth investing in because you are saving them money. Um, we have a challenge in the U.S. with regard to um, recognizing that uh, uh, a penny for prevention is worth a, you know, a pound for cure and that we don't spend enough money on avoidance and prevention. Um, and so we do have to get those, those models aligned. But the way in which we've seen scale work is to be able to create that great consumer experience that I mentioned to demonstrate objectively that you're improving outcomes and that you can do that at a price that provides a return on investment to who's ever at risk for the cost of care. And if you have that in your business model, then you're going to be able to scale with plans across the country, um, even if you're contracting one by one, uh, which takes time, but you'll get there over time in terms of being able to scale. And the same thing in terms of being able to work with governments who are at risk for, in some of the populations that we've been talking about, more than 50% of the cost of care is paid for by the government for many of these individuals. And so they see it in their interest to be able to provide these models in ways that can deliver more services to more people, better outcomes at lower cost. Thank you. Dan, how, how have you viewed this in your experience, the scale question in your communities? 
Yeah, I think Lee said some great points there. I think generally speaking, we at MetaRive, we've completely stayed away from a, a pure D2C home-based home care model. There's lots of great companies out there trying to figure that out. You know, I my background, I was I was running the healthcare team at Uber prior to starting MetaRive. You know, it's hard enough uh, getting a millennial to a bar on a Friday night and actually uh, on top of that, making money. Um, you know, from our standpoint, we don't want to be spending a bunch of our time and effort on D2C marketing and customer acquisition, going to some of Lee's points, we want to build rich relationships with our largest MCOs, Medicare providers in the country. You know, we have a phenomenal relationship with Centene. We work with Superior Health Plan. Superior Health Plan manages 1.2 million lives just in the state of Texas, it has the largest foster kids program in the state. We want to bring value to them to show that not only can we improve total uh, you know, health outcomes, but we can also lower total cost of care uh, by providing valuable resources into the home and really building our, our relationships and scaling our business on the back of some of the you know, largest MCOs uh, that are out there. The thing is, it takes time. As, uh, as Kaiser used to tell me in a prior lifetime when I worked with them, TTT, things take time. That was literally out of the mouths of their executive team. Um, and these businesses take decades to build. I mean, the truth is we're not building a social media app. I think when Instagram sold their business for a billion dollars to, to Facebook, I think it had 11 employees. I mean, that, that's, not, that's not healthcare. That's not going to happen in the space we're in. Uh, and you have to be in it for the long run. But what's critical is showing the value, showing the outcomes and growing with these partners. And, you know, again, it just, it just takes time. Dan was saying some of that for my benefit, though, as an investor in his company, that it's going to take a little bit longer. It's going to be a little harder to get to value. So the comments weren't lost on me, Dan. <laughs> very, very well played, Lee. Try to be subtle. How about you, Chris? Yeah, you know, on the scale, it's interesting that over the past year, we've spent more time getting to know our health plans, other partners in the last year than probably in the preceding 29 years. Um, and part of that, right, as we try to impact a greater sphere of total healthcare costs and outcomes, um, that has really helped us in our business growth. It's helped us in delivering upon our commitments to our clients. But where I'm, where I'm going with this, it has led to other opportunities for both companies because, you know, as you're, as you're learning about their other partners, right, and you're trying to figure out everybody's financial model, it, to just be real blunt of, hey, if I send more uh, and help you get engaged with more people, right, our shared patients, is that a good thing or a bad thing for your financial model? And for many companies, the answer is yes. But there are a lot of financial models out there of like, oh, my goodness, if we drive up engagement in, in their business model by 50%, it bankrupts that company. So what we've done is really spend time of developing these relationships and understanding these financial models. So as we go around just within our client base and we see and learn of different needs, it gives us the ability to say, well, you know what? There are some other players in here that we think you should speak to. Right, because it's right for the goals uh, that we understand you're trying to achieve. We can't serve that, right? And it's an aligned model where we're working through various pipes where if you choose them or vice versa, you know, you choose us, the pipes are already built. And so you have 
multiple players that have already agreed we're going to play in the sandbox, not just well, but great together. And, you know, having worked for, for two large health plans in prior lives, most of their partners, right, don't approach it that way, which causes either the health plan to have to figure that out or to force, or heaven forbid, I got various partners that are actually conflicted and I might not know it often, often at the time. And so, you know, these broader relationships that are being developed are very beneficial. It's beneficial for scaling our growth, right? It's very beneficial for how do we deliver more value to the patient? How do we make things easier for our shared client, right? Because they've got enough things to worry about. And I think that's going to be a real key. And for, a, you know, a past purchaser of these services from a health plan, um, you know, it's a dividing of the city uh, of both current and future partners. Are you willing to approach things that way? Yes or no. And I got to tell you, if I was back in my old health plan roles, if I got a sniff or even an inkling that you were not willing to approach it that way, we would not be having any more conversations because this level of collaboration and driving engagement across things, going back to lead chair, secondary chair, who should be just carrying luggage, I think is one of the best ways to not just unlock more value for the patient and, and the payer or whoever it is, but quite frankly, for all of our businesses to grow. I, I love that. Final question. We've, we're three and a half years out from the pandemic and it, in many ways, it completely accelerated things that would have taken years and years. And we're also now back at the point where I think there's some dangerous thinking about hey, we're, we're only as far as we're going to get with virtual care or telemedicine. It's 20% or 10% of visits, right? And, and I think we have to really guard against that kind of thinking. Let's play forward three, three and a half years. Final question for each of you. What will be a signal that care in the home has been further instantiated into our financial and operational model? And it doesn't have to be a specific metric, but how will we know if we look back on this discussion three and a half years from now that what has happened in the future really advanced? So I'll, I'll jump in. Um, uh, recently, I had an article called Digital Health is Dead, Long Live Health. And what we're finding is that, that these tools that we have that can deliver care anywhere it's just one more screen. It's one more place to make care available. And it's going to be fully integrated into the way in which care is delivered. And I think that what we're finding is health plans are now launching virtual only care plans um, that we're starting to see a recognition that these tools play an important role in terms of delivery of care. And that means meeting people where they are, whether they're at home, whether they're traveling, whether they're at work. And so the home is a place, no different than the provider office, no different than in some cases the workplace, where there will be appropriate levels of care delivered based on what the needs are and based on what the situation demands. And as demonstrated from this call, the home for many people is maybe the only place that they can get care. And so recognizing that means that you have to provide the support and the availability for services to be delivered there. And, and I think that more and more those responsible for payment are recognizing that it's not only more efficient, a better experience, a safer experience, a way to create more leverage in terms of the services that are being delivered, 
that ultimately, as we get three to five years out from now, we'll see an expansion of delivery in the home. So I, I'm bullish on it. Yeah, well stated. Chris McGee. Um, so I think the first thing is that um, either the existing financial models need to be made permanent or um, new financial models created and accelerated. Um, I think that that's, if that happens, that's going to you know drive a much larger percentage on the acute side of our inpatient care into the into the home. The second thing I think is that the infrastructure around how all of that happens has to be strengthened. Like if, if we think about how much money we have spent um, building the tools and systems and infrastructure to enable our current like physical building focused um, healthcare world, you know, if, if you're a, an attending in an ER, you can admit a patient to the floor in basically a single click and that whole workflow just happens. If you're that ER attending and you want to put them into a hospital home program, it's six different phone calls. But that's the that's the workflow today. Um, so we need that same infrastructure to be built up. And, and you know, if in three, four, five years we're in that place where someone doesn't even need to come into the hospital in the first place, or you know, with one click they can be put into the program. Um, I think you know that would be a huge step forward. And then the last part is, and again, I'm going to keep it focused on hospital home for a second. You know, right now, most of our partners maybe have two, three percent of their admissions going into a hospital home program. All of them have aspirations to make it 20, 30, 40 percent. Like, you know, if, if, if three, four, five years out, right, um, we're seeing 30 percent of admissions going to the home, I think that that would be a big success. Fabulous. Dan. Yeah. I mean, first, as you've done, let's recognize we've come a very long way. I think, um, you know, Four year, four or five years ago, only two uh, percent of Americans had some sort of home health care provided to them. That's you know four and a half million people or so, and and things have drastically changed. When we look at hospital at home, hundred forty plus hospitals uh, got the waiver from CMS. So, I think a lot of it is also led by policy and regulatory uh, shifts, uh, which we need to continue to see if we want this to be successful. But for me personally, I think the biggest indicator is when it's much more well adopted and utilized by the have-nots. Uh, not the top 1% who can afford to download an app and push a button and get somebody to come see them for a UTI on demand. You know, There's much of the population that is not gonna use that app and can't afford for on-demand concierge medicine. So once we see that shift from our Medicaid population in particular, our most vulnerable and underserved, and when this becomes more mainstream for them, I then believe we'll see uh, a material tipping point in in, in in home care services. So that's something that I'll be looking for and looking for more MCOs in particular to adopt these types of programs. Chris, take us home. Yeah, well, I'll probably give the bizarre answer on this one. Um, you know, the indicator that I'll be looking at three, four, five years isn't on the healthcare spend, isn't on utilization rates per se of various things. A look at what percent of the population at that point is still suffering from loneliness and the degree of loneliness they're suffering from. And the reason I, I, I go there, right, we serve managed Medicaid and, and Medicare Advantage heavily, right, they're two biggest sectors. We'll all mobilize and the healthcare industry will mobilize around the one, two, three, four, five percent of people that spend half of healthcare, right? And there'll be a path. 
but the wave that is coming is being driven by a variety of other things. And the reason I'm going with the loneliness, it's one, we see it every day when we're in the house. It is staggering the number of people that are suffering from this. And they have nobody, right? And some of that can be uh, filled in and placed by our entities and others like us being physically present. But in reality, in order to really solve that, it's going to need to be able to, how do we get them connected with other parts of their community? And I'm using community very broadly. So they feel part of something and they're interacting with something or someone, which brings in a host of digital and other virtual assets. And so as I kind of take a step back three, four, five years, if I see the loneliness indicator for the people that we serve dramatically improve, I'd say, oh my goodness, we've made major, major strides, not just with, with the problems of today, but the wave of problems and costs that are coming uh, for us. And that's going to go beyond the one, two, three, four percent of patients or members that everybody is focused in on. And that's the exciting part because nobody's figured that out, right? We all have a vested interest and it's something that's really easy to measure, right? And it's going to take all of us. Yeah, powerful. Well, I um, I couldn't have asked for a better group of experts today. This is just such a rich and powerful conversation. And I think the interesting thing here is I think there's a play for IHCS, MetaRive, and Best Buy to be partners. You talk about the different roles here. It's fascinating if we just sort of got in a room for a day, what kind of solution you could all bring. And Chris Bradbury, to your point about not moats, but sort of expanding the opportunity and how many more partners like this are out there. So I'm, I'm um, enriched for this conversation today from each of you and grateful. A lot to share with this audience that's going to listen. So thank you, everyone. Thank you.